Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court agrees to hear arguments on whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution in the 2020 election interference case. A Senate shakeup. Kentucky Republican Mitch McConnell announces he's stepping down from leadership after 17 years at the helm. And the results of Michigan's presidential primary and the warning signs they contain for the leading candidates of both parties. Welcome to the News Hour. The Supreme Court says it will now hear arguments over whether Donald Trump is immune, immune from prosecution for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The justices have set oral arguments for the week of April 22nd. Mr. Trump's pending trial in a federal court in Washington will stay on hold until then. William Brangham has been following all of the Trump legal cases and joins us now. So, William, what did the justices say? And how might it affect the potential scheduling of Mr. Trump's January 6th case? Well, the justices, as you both just reported, said that they will take up this question, which has been sort of simmering in the background of the whole January 6th election interference case. And it is whether or not Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for any of his activities uh, leading up to that election. This is a clear victory for Donald Trump and a clear blow to Jack Smith, the special counsel in this case. Donald Trump, as we have reported, had wanted to dismiss that case and or delay it as long as possible. And the Supreme Court taking this up does exactly that. This decision by the court is something of a surprise simply because the, the, the bipartisan rigor with which the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Trump's immunity appeal and that's what kicked this up to the Supreme Court. That seemed like such a strong ruling that many people thought that the Supreme Court would not take this up. So to your question, Jeff, about timing, as you mentioned, hearings at the end of April, if Trump wins that appeal and the Supreme Court decides that he does have immunity, then the January 6th case goes away, as do many of other cases against the former president. If the court rules against him that he does not have immunity, then the January 6th case in Washington, D.C. could start likely by the end of summertime. And William, remind us, what is the specific immunity argument that Mr. Trump's attorneys are making? Donald Trump argued, and his lawyers, that all of his behavior leading up to the 2020 election, in the aftermath of that election, they were all part of his official duties. That's the official term there. And that that is part of what the president did, and thus he cannot be prosecuted for those acts. He argues, his lawyers argue, that this would cripple future presidents and make it impossible for them to make decisions about anything. Special counsel Jack Smith has rejected that argument, as has the appeals court and the judge overseeing the January 6th case, saying that if a president gets complete immunity for anything that they do while they're president, that just opens the floodgates for any potential behavior. They argue that what the president did in all of the fake electors scheme and all of the attempts to subvert the fact that Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden, that those were clearly illegal outside of the responsibilities of a president. And that if you grant him immunity, it basically capsizes any sense of accountability, allowing future presidents just endless freedom to act with impunity. That's what the court's gonna rule on. William Brangham, our thanks to you for that reporting. We appreciate it. Thank you. A swirl of news at the U.S. Capitol today, where this afternoon the top four leaders in Congress agreed to a deal to avert a partial government shutdown for at least a week. That after one of those leaders, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell, announced he will step down from leadership this fall. McConnell's news came as Republicans on the other side of the Capitol also made headlines, questioning President Biden's son, Hunter, behind closed doors as part of their impeachment inquiry. Our Lisa Desjardins has been following it all, and she joins us now. Lisa, a busy, busy day. Let's talk about this spending deal first. What's in it, and has the shutdown now been averted? 
Yes, with two important caveats. Yes, for now. And two, this still has to pass through both chambers of Congress. Let's talk about this deal, what's in it. Here's a look. First, the deadline that was coming up the fastest, March 1st. That deadline moves to March 8th, so buying time to pass the bills that we're about to run out of money. So what this means is now they're going to try and pass six separate spending bills between now and March 8th. They basically have those bills ready to go, but they need to kind of, they need to write the text, get it out, and give members time to read it. So the other deadline, the harder one, the March 8th deadline as it is now, would move to March 22nd. That one is harder, Amna, because among other things, it includes the Department of Homeland Security, border spending, those kinds of things. So that is when we will watch very closely. This next week will be important to see if we can actually not kick the can down the road again, at least on half of these bills. But basically, they're buying time. At least they agree on that. At least they agree on that. Let me ask you now about the news from Leader McConnell, the longest-serving Senate leader in history. Why is he stepping down, and, and what does his stepping down mean? You know, McConnell is a historic figure, not just because he's a master strategist. And you could say he's the reason, for example, that Roe v. Wade was overturned because of how he handled Supreme Court nominations. But he is also the most powerful opponent of some of Donald Trump's policies and statements in the Republican Party. Why is he stepping down? He says simply he is in his 80s and he realizes that now it is time for him to hand this over to a next generation. Father time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. He was first elected in 1984. He mentioned that Ronald Reagan, in fact, got his name wrong when he was first elected. Now, what's going to happen here is the Senator McConnell will step down from leadership in November, he says. There will be a fight among Senate Republicans to replace him. He, it sounds like right now, will stay in the Senate itself. But Elna, this is also meaningful because what we're seeing here with Senate Republicans, that group that really has been sort of a traditional Republican force, that's changing. Mm -hmm. As we saw in the Ukraine vote, more than 20 Republicans voted against Ukraine funding. Those are the younger members. Those are the folks who are more Trump, more hard right. Mitch McConnell stepping aside changes some dynamics there. Okay, what about news on the other side? In right. the House, meanwhile, uh, we know the president's son, Hunter Biden, spent some seven hours testifying behind closed doors today. What did we learn? We need to wait for the transcript. It's going to be a long one after seven hours of questioning. But a couple of things. Hunter Biden did not plead the fifth at all, even though, of course, he faces criminal charges. He's in the midst of his own uh, criminal proceedings. He was responsive. Even Republicans said he responded to most questions that they asked him. However, it was highly contentious. It was even messy at the beginning, both sides interrupting each other. And Democrats say that part of the problem here was that uh, Republicans were asking personal questions. As for Hunter Biden, I want to read you part of his opening statement. This is what he says his message was all day today. He, he told members that he was here today to provide the committee with the one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business. And Democrats say, in fact, that's what happened all day long, that Republicans sometimes brought on personal attacks against him, but nothing against former President, or President Biden. Here's what Democrats said to the cameras. What we just witnessed over the last hour was, I think, a deep-sea fishing expedition because the Republican case has completely fallen apart over the last several weeks. This whole thing really has been a tremendous waste of our legislative time and the people's resources. This is nothing more than a distraction from what Republicans don't want us to pay attention to. They don't want us to pay attention to the fact that they cannot govern. That was across the board from, from Democrats. And when you talk to staffers behind the scenes, they say they, they felt like there was nothing new here from Hunter Biden. Republicans saw something a little differently. Here's Republican Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Hunter Biden is being defiant and also dishonest. And his testimony, some of it, is in direct conflict with other witnesses. And so the transcripts will be out. I won't go into detail. You'll be able to see it for yourself. But um, it's no surprise. It's no shock uh, that he is being that way. And in some cases, he doesn't recall. He said that multiple times this morning, which, again, is not a shocker either. 
Here's the thing. We definitely do want to see this for ourselves, whether there are inconsistencies or not. Now, we know that there is very little direct evidence that Republicans have presented that President Biden knew anything about Hunter Biden's business deals. There are two witnesses that say they think perhaps Joe Biden was going to get a cut of profits. But today in testimony, Hunter Biden said, no, the people who said that were out of their minds for thinking that. We'll watch that. But right now, we don't know that there is that direct evidence right now of Joe Biden being involved in anything that was a problem. We may find out more ourselves because one thing we heard today was that they expect to have public hearings now with Hunter Biden. That is the next step, as folks might remember when we went through Trump impeachment proceedings. Public hearings are the next step before potential articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. Lisa Desjardins, quite literally covering it all on Capitol Hill. Lisa, thank you so much. You're welcome. In the day's other news, high winds pushed wildfires across the Texas panhandle, and one grew into the second largest in that state's history. The fire has charred more than 1,300 square miles and destroyed homes around the towns of Canadian and Fritch. Disaster declarations covered dozens of counties, and officials said the burned areas now look like moonscapes. Hundreds of people were urged to evacuate. The U.S. Supreme Court will also decide whether to uphold a ban on bump stocks that let semi-automatic weapons fire like machine guns. Arguments today centered on whether the devices fall under laws against machine guns dating back to the 1930s. A decision is expected by summer. An appeals judge in New York refused today to let former President Donald Trump delay paying a huge civil fraud penalty. Instead, he'll have to post a bond worth $454 million while his appeal continues. But the judge also lifted, for now, a ban on letting Mr. Trump seek bank loans in New York. Trump lawyers argued he'll, he'll need the loans to cover the bond. In the Middle East, the leader of Hamas says his group will consider making concessions in the Gaza ceasefire and hostage talks. But he added that Hamas is equally ready to continue fighting. Any flexibility we are showing in the negotiations is to protect the blood of our people and to put an end to their huge pains and sacrifices in the brutal war of extermination against it. In parallel, we are ready to defend our people. Meantime, families of Israeli hostages held in Gaza began a four-day march from southern Israel to Jerusalem. They carried signs and pictures demanding that their loved ones be released. Loved ones and supporters of Alexei Navalny now say they will hold a funeral for him on Friday at a church in Moscow. The Russian opposition leader died this month at a prison in the Arctic. In France today, Navalny's widow told the European Parliament that she's worried about arrests at the funeral. She also warned against negotiating with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin must answer for what he has done with my country. Putin must answer for what he has done to a neighboring peaceful country. And Putin must answer for everything he has done to Alexei. The head of Navalny's foundation said today the funeral was originally planned for tomorrow when Putin makes his annual address to Russian lawmakers, but no venue would host the service on that day. Back in this country, President Biden had his annual physical and his doctor reported that he's in good health. A summary described Mr. Biden as, quote, a healthy, active, robust 81-year-old male who remains fit to execute his duties. The physical did not include a cognitive test. White House officials said his neurologist did not believe one was necessary. The president signed an executive order today to block China and Russia in particular from gaining access to Americans' personal data. The goal is to prevent so-called data brokers from selling information to so-called countries of concern. It could take months to set up enforcement mechanisms. And dreams took flight in Dubai today as the Persian Gulf city-state held its first-ever jet suit race. Pilots zoomed around the marina, controlling jet engines attached to their backs and hands. The suits, with 1,500 horsepower, were capable of doing 80 miles an hour. One flyer ended up in the water, but he was not hurt. On Wall Street, stocks edged lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 23 points to close at 38,949. The Nasdaq fell 87 points. The S&P 500 was down 8. And comedian Richard Lewis has died in Los Angeles after battling Parkinson's disease. 
For years, he starred on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm and performed in clubs and on late-night TV for decades. His self-proclaimed paranoia about everything earned him the nickname the Prince of Pain. Richard Lewis was 76 years old. And still to come on the NewsHour, we speak with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in an exclusive interview about the congressional funding deal and the state of the economy. And how some governors are trying to solve their state's problems at a time of intense political polarization. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. President Biden and former President Trump both secured victories in Michigan's primaries last night. Mr. Trump claimed 68 percent of the Republican vote over challenger Nikki Haley. And President Biden won 81 percent of the Democratic vote in that state, with over 100,000 voters casting uncommitted ballots in protest of the president's approach toward the Israel-Hamas war. For analysis, we turn to Republican strategist Kevin Madden, who advised Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, and Democratic strategist Faz Shakir, who served as campaign manager for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. It's great to have you both here. And Faz, we'll start with you and talk about the number of uncommitted ballots in the Michigan primary. I've been talking and texting with Democratic officials and campaign hands today, and there are those who say that, look, this really shows that President Biden has to really fight to keep his coalition together heading into November. And there are other Democrats who say Michigan has a tradition of these sort of these ballot protests. Yes, the campaign needs to be aware of it, but they have eight months to turn it around. When you look at these numbers, what do you see? I see that there are people who, because of American democracy, were able to express their hurt and their pain about the Middle East war through the ballot box, right? Not only just in a, a, a protest, but also to, to vote. And I think for President Biden, he's got good information now, right? He's not only in strong standing with Democrats, but he knows that he's got some issues with young people, with Arab and Muslim Americans, with a progressive left that he can fix and cure and heal. To his credit, you could imagine a different candidate who gave the stiff arm to the, hey, if you don't like me, then go vote for Trump. He didn't do that. What he's maintained, I think, as a posture said, I want you in this coalition. Even if you did, might disagree with where I'm at right now on this policy, I want you know that I am values aligned with you. So he's got some time and period. Ultimately, his biggest problem is fixing the policy. So he's going to the State of the Union. He, he's working, as you know, working his brains out with the Secretary of State, trying to get a six-week ceasefire and a hostage release. If he can do it, I do think it'll help so much. And that's what people are asking, because it's not as if the, the movement has, like, specific concrete solutions attached to their side. Do something. Hold Netanyahu accountable. Show us that you hear and feel our pain. And, Kevin, let's talk about Nikki Haley, because she is still in this race after suffering six stinging defeats. What's her endgame at this point? Well, I think the endgame is actually a long game for Nikki Haley. Um, there is a great value, I think, if you look at the trajectory of the, where the party's going, um, and Nikki Haley being the presumptive frontrunner for 2028. Um, and that's, I think, where her campaign is actually going now. It's, they, they've, they've spent a lot of time investing in the infrastructure and growing her national profile. And, you know, campaigns never really run out of reasons to run. They only run out of money. Her donors have actually still stepped up and funded her campaign to this part, uh, to this point. And I think that's one of the things that she's going to continue to do, to try to be a voice in the party and also set herself up for a potential 2028 run. Could she stay in this all the way to the convention? Because there are Republicans now who say that, look, if she shows up with a certain number of delegates, that allows her to exert more power on the convention floor. It's hard to see because I think the resource question gets more and more difficult when you don't have any really delegates to show for, for, for your work and, and, a, and a real path to victory at a convention. So I think that's become, that, that'll become a difficult sort of consideration with uh, Haley and her supporters and her donors over the next few weeks. Meantime, Faz, the uh, super PAC that supports Robert F. Kennedy Jr., they say they now have enough signatures to get him on the ballot in Arizona and Georgia. And Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin were states that, that Joe Biden won by a narrow margin. I think less than 30,000 votes, if memory serves. What does, that, what does that do to his campaign, the Biden campaign, and how do they have to sort of course correct for this? It's unclear exactly where RFK's votes will come from. I do think it's a hurt to Joe Biden because my impression coming into this election is people know where they stand with Donald Trump. I think he's got a hard cap on the amount of support that exists for him out there. And if you're in the Trump campaign, what you're trying to do is peel off the votes from Joe Biden. So you look at, we were talking about Michigan, for instance. Last time, Biden got 2.8 million votes in Michigan. Trump got about 2.6 million. So if you're going in here now in Michigan again, 
Georgia, Arizona, you mentioned those states, those critical battlegrounds where the margin was even thinner. It, they know that they probably can count on some enthusiasm for Trump to reach that same number or around that same number. What they, what they need to do is drive down Biden's number. And each of these third-party candidates' efforts is, I think, going to dilute and hurt uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and so I, my impression coming into this is the more that RFK is out there on ballots, it's going to hurt our side, and I'm concerned about it. And Kevin, Faz raises the point about um, enthusiasm. Let's talk about enthusiasm for Donald Trump, because if you look at Iowa and track all the way to Michigan, Donald Trump is losing somewhere between 20 to 40 percent of the Republican base who say they're not going to vote for him or that they're not entirely won over just yet. What does that say about his strength as a candidate heading into a general election? Well, I think in a primary perspective, he's still actually running one of the more dominant primary campaigns that I've ever witnessed in my time in politics. Um, and we also, if we look back to 2016, Donald Trump won the Republican nomination by winning only 44 percent of the popular vote inside that, uh, inside that, that fight. So he's in a much better position than he was in 2016, and he won in 2016. But there's still a, there's still a but here, which is, the, the profile of the Nikki Haley voter is crucial to Donald Trump winning in November. Those, that, that Nikki Haley voter right now is more moderate, more pragmatic, probably more likely to come from these suburb areas. If you look at the Michigan results, a lot of Nikki Haley's stronger counties were those, those collar counties around Detroit or around Grand Rapids. Those are the crucial areas for winning that state uh, in, in November. So. Donald Trump has some work to do. He, got, he can't let those voters stay home. He can't let them become never-Trumpers. He has to get them to the point where they're going to essentially be nose holders. Well, they may not like Donald Trump, but he's better than the alternative. He's better than Joe Biden. That's going to be the charge and the challenge for the Trump campaign from here, all the way from here to November. And looking to, ahead to tomorrow, there's going to be quite the split screen with both President Trump and Donald Trump at the southern border on separate trips. Uh, aimed at sort of touting their different views on immigration and their solutions for the southern border. Can Democrats in this election cycle, do you think, really chip into the polling advantage that Republicans have on handling border security? I mean, if it's an immigration election, it, I, I think it won't go well for Joe Biden. I mean, he, one of the things he's trying to do with this visit, I think, is to de decrease the salience of the issue. It is increasing in salience. The Gallup polls indicate that this is becoming a, a greater concern for people of both parties, partly because of reality. I mean, as, as more and more mayors across America are dealing with it and trying to figure out housing and uh, all kinds of employment practices and how you'd have the, uh, the funds and the resources to deal with them, it's a becoming a serious problem. It also is an economic problem. Uh, you know, one, one thing that Democrats haven't often talked about is the corporate exploitation of, of low-wage worker. I think it, it is a message that could resonate with a lot of people. However, if you think about this, this split screen, they're trying to decrease the, lever, the, the issue salience. What Biden wants is this election to be fought on democracy, on abortion rights, on core, even core economic issues that distinguish him and Trump. And I think by going to the border, he's saying, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't know that if you, this is a major issue, I'm on it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says, every state now is a border state. How is this manifesting in the election? Well, it's the number one issue right now. That's one of the things that's interesting is how much it surged to the top of the issue priorities for many Americans. Uh, an eight-point surge, Gallup came out with a poll yesterday, it was an eight-point surge just over the last month. So I think we're, you're right that if it becomes, a, if, this is, if this becomes a, immigration is, be, is a top issue like that, and it becomes a referendum on the Biden um, record on immigration, it's going to be a very, very difficult challenge for Biden to overcome a lot of the negative views that many voters have about this. And I think in particularly in these swing areas of battleground states around the country, if you think about the suburbs of Atlanta, the Maricopa County in Arizona, even as far north as in you know Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, those suburbs, border security is a huge issue for those voters. So mm -hmm. I think it's advantage Trump on that. Kevin Madden, Fast Shakir, thank you both. Great conversation. Appreciate yeah. it. As Lisa reported, a government shutdown appears to be averted for now. Earlier today, I spoke with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and I asked her for her response to the news. Well, I'm pleased with the news. Um, I think the shutting down the government at this point would be um, extremely disruptive. It would deprive uh, the American public of services that they rely on day in and day out. 
and our economy is doing so well um, with low unemployment, inflation coming down, strong growth, that um, it's really important to avoid a needless, um, needless threat to our economic prospects. As you know, there are more funding deadlines ahead, though, and it seems like the threat of a shutdown has now become part of the process. Are you worried that that continually coming close to the brink of a shutdown, as we seem to be, is having a long-term damaging effect on the American economy? Well, I, it, is, it is disturbing. We also lived through an episode where uh, the willingness of Congress to raise the debt ceiling was in doubt. And I think it is important to investors around the world to know that we have a well-functioning government. So um, my hope is that Congress will pass uh, a series of appropriation bills and also provide Ukraine with the money that they so desperately need. Let me ask you about some of the strong economic indicators we do see right now in the U.S. Unemployment is at its lowest levels in about 50 years. Inflation has been coming down, is now around 3%. The U.S. economy has been outperforming many others. But still, as you know, Americans are still down on the economy. Consumer, consumer confidence fell again in February. How do you view that pessimism among Americans right now? What do you think is behind that? Well, Americans lived through a lot. Um, the pandemic had very significant and lasting impacts, I think, on their lifestyles and attitudes. Importantly, although inflation has come way down, some prices that are important to so many Americans, like uh, the cost of rent um, or, um, in, you know, in the, co the cost of electricity, food, they're higher than, uh, those costs are higher than they were before the pandemic. And now wages are rising more rapidly than prices, so Americans are getting ahead. But nevertheless, people remember that prices were lower, and we're trying to do everything we can to bring down health care costs and um, other costs that are definite strains on Americans' budgets. We should mention you are at the G20 summit. You're meeting with a number of officials from around the world. And, of course, support for Ukraine is high on the agenda. We know the White House is struggling to get Ukraine aid through Republican resistance in Congress right now. And this week you suggested something we hadn't heard before, which was unfreezing about $300 billion of assets from the Russian central bank and getting that money to Ukraine. Does that speak to your doubt in America's ability to move more aid through Congress for Ukraine? Well, it's critically important that Congress uh, approve the aid that we've requested to Ukraine. And no action concerning these sovereign assets can substitute for that. And I can't overemphasize the importance, the urgency that attaches to the House uh, passing the uh, Ukraine package that the Senate passed. With respect to the Russian assets, we're looking at options. Um, taking the Russian assets um, is that's, that's only one possible strategy. We're looking at a number of different strategies by which we could leverage those assets for Ukraine's benefit. And I think what that would say to Putin is, I think Putin maybe feels that he can outlast us, that our will is faltering when it comes to supporting Ukraine. And if we can use these assets to provide a stream of uh, financing for Ukraine, uh, I think it says to Putin that we're in this for the long haul and not about to fold. If I may, Madam Secretary, based on what you've seen back here in the United States unfolding in Congress and the fact that we are in an election year uh, and Republicans seem largely resistant to push more Ukraine aid through, are you confident that the U.S. will approve more aid for Ukraine? We're certainly making the case as strongly as we possibly can. And what we saw is that in the Senate there was strong bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine. 
I believe exactly the same thing is true in the House, but um, we have a problem that this speaker has been unwilling to allow this to come up for a vote, but we need to find a way to have that enacted through the House. I strongly urge uh, the House to pass this bill. As you speak with officials from around the world there, what are they telling you about how they're watching congressional gridlock here in the U.S., the upcoming presidential election? What do they tell you about their worries or concerns? Well, I can see that they are very concerned. Um, we've banded together uh, as a coalition to provide uh, support to Ukraine right from the moment the invasion occurred, but they can't fill the hole that would be left both in terms of military equipment and financial support if we don't do our share. And I've emphasized the president's commitment, my commitment to do everything conceivable um, to, at, to get Congress to provide this aid. Um, strongly believe that it's in the national interest. And um, without it, we expect Ukraine will make further losses and fall further behind. That is the United States Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joining us tonight. Madam Secretary, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. At a time of intense polarization across the country and bitter partisan battles in Washington, some of the nation's governors are attempting to find a way forward to solve their own state's problems. Judy Woodruff recently sat down with two governors from opposing sides to talk about their call to disagree better. It's part of her ongoing series, America at a Crossroads. Hello, I'm Eric Holcomb, Republican governor of Indiana. And I'm Clint Lamb, Democratic mayor of the city of Sullivan. Republican and Democratic leaders sitting down for a meal. And like any good neighbor, we'll continue to disagree on plenty of things. Like barbecue, tax policy, or who's the bigger cheese fan? Encouraging Americans to engage in respectful dialogue. But we can have our differences without being divisive or hateful. This series from the National Governors Association is the brainchild of NGA President Spencer Cox. You and I probably disagree on a few things, and that's okay. The first-term Republican governor from Utah who wants to show Americans how to disagree better. Our country is deeply divided, and most Americans are tired of the division. We see dysfunction in Congress. We, we see this deep polarization that's happening all across the country. And so we, we had this, this crazy idea that we could focus on disagreeing better, re reminding Americans how to disagree without hating each other and, and how to try to actually find solutions to some of our, our, our biggest problems. Last week, as governors from across the country gathered in Washington for their winter summit, I met Governors Cox and Wes Moore, the first-term Democrat from Maryland and an event hosted by the Economic Club of Washington to talk about why they're pushing this initiative now. It's been a fantastic opportunity for, for us to remember that, uh, that there's nothing more un-American than hating our, our fellow Americans. We are not going to get anything done if we just simply scream into a wind or if we're just talking to an echo chamber. Uh, you know, our ability to be able to be productive, our ability to be able to be effective, uh, means that we have to work across the aisle. It means that we have to be able to meet with people who, even if you, at the end of the process, disagree with the conclusion, they will at least respect the process, that you heard them, that they understood where you came from, and that you understood where they came from. Governor Moore, I want to ask you about how you work through some of the most difficult, most divisive issues of our time. One of them is immigration. What's an example of a way to even talk about immigration that would be productive? Yeah. I, I think the thing that we can all fundamentally uh, agree to is that the system that we have in place right now, it does not work. And so the reason that I signed a letter with, with eight other governors saying that we, we are urging Congress to move on this what was so frustrating watching a bill that was literally worked on with the president, Democrats, and even conservative Republicans like Senator Langford 
to go down in flames. Why it was so frustrating is that the consequences fall on our shoulders. And that's why we need a measurement of, of, of action. So could you, Governor Cox, you're a Republican, you've seen what's happened, you heard, uh, you know that it's uh, the Republicans in the House who, who are saying we're not going to go along with this. What's a way, to th a way through this? Well, the, the, the way through is, uh, unfortunately, we, you know, we need Congress to start doing their job and, and the president to, to enforce the laws. Those, it's, it's really that simple. This, this is the least divisive of the most divisive issues. If you poll Republicans and Democrats, um, everyone agrees. They just do. Democrats believe we need to secure the border and Republicans believe we need to fix legal immigration. I, I can tell you right now, if, if Governor Moore and I were asked to solve this problem, even if you just had all 50 governors solve this problem, we could sit down and do it in a weekend. Of course, there are real and substantive differences over how to move forward on divisive issues like reproductive rights, transgender policy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Just recently, Governor Cox signed legislation in Utah banning DEI programs in state government and universities, prohibiting gender-affirming care and surgery for minors, and mandating that trans people use the bathrooms that correspond with their gender assigned at birth in public schools and state-owned buildings. Both Cox and Moore emphasize that disagree better doesn't mean there won't be real disagreements at the end of the day. The process matters. I think the process is really important. And, and, and the way we treat each other and, and the way we've approached DEI is a little different than, than other states. Um, we're, we're trying to focus on, on government not discriminating on the basis of color, but, but helping everyone who, who's struggling. We want everyone to, to feel included. We think inclusiveness is very important. We think diversity is very important. Um, and, and how we do that, how we use the power of the state to do that is also really important. And that's where there, there is definitely some disagreement. Sometimes too much gets lumped into DEI that, that really isn't DEI. And, and understanding what the philosophy is behind it is, is really important. And so yes, there are major disagreements when it comes to DEI, but at the end of the day, I think we're seeking the same thing. And that is that everyone feels included, that everyone has the same opportunity, um, that we're, the deck is not stacked against anyone. That, that really matters to me. And I think it matters to most Americans. And, and I think there, uh, and that's exactly right, that we want to make sure that everyone is just getting a, a fair shot at open success. You know, we, we know that a lot, of the, a lot of the discrepancies and a lot of the disparities that we have seen in our society, that we still see to this day, everything from wealth gap to housing gaps to educational gaps, they haven't been by accident. Uh, there have been government policies that have helped to create that. The reason that we look at things like a, a racial wealth gap, for example, you can't understand that without understanding things like the Homestead Act, the unequal application of the GI Bill, uh, historic redlining. Uh, you can't understand how the racial wealth gap has ballooned to 10 to one in this country without understanding that it's been government policies that have helped to create that level of gap. What is government's role to help to address the inequities that government helped to create? I'm Spencer Cox, your Republican candidate for Utah governor. And I'm Chris Peterson, your Democratic candidate for governor. We are Yet another issue starkly dividing the country is trust in elections. In 2020, as he ran for his first term as governor, Governor Cox joined his Democratic competitor in a pledge to honor the outcome of the election, whatever the results. Whether you vote by mail or in person, we will fully support the results of the upcoming presidential election, regardless of the outcome. Researchers at Stanford studying polarization told me last year that this kind of public act by leaders can make a real difference in ratcheting down partisan animosity. And yet, right now, the latest poll shows 69% of Republicans say they don't believe Joe Biden legitimately won the election in 2020 to be president. How do we move forward when there's a disagreement on something as fundamental as that? Yeah, that, that, that's a tough one for sure. There's no question. And I'm, I'm very fascinated about how and why that's been able to, to happen. That myth has been perpetuated so much when we've had uh, legal proceeding after legal proceeding that, that has shown that, uh, that, that none of those allegations were true. And it's, it's difficult in, in this new era where we have social media and, and uh, you know, we, we can surround ourselves with, with information that just confirms whatever we want to believe. Uh, 
our biases instead of instead of actual truth and, and seeking for truth, and and that that deeply concerns me as a nation. We need good people uh, who who are willing to stand up and speak the truth, even if it's unpopular. And uh, I will certainly continue to do that. I ran against an election denier. Uh, where when asked the question, would he accept the results of the election, his answer literally was, it depends on the results of the election. So it, it's, it's a very difficult baseline <laughs> to start that conversation with that. But I, I think the thing that we continue to have to do um, is understand why that exists. And for a lot of people, it is a lack of trust. It's a lack of trust in institutions. That, that statistic is something, is actually saying something much bigger. It's not just about elections. It's not about aid and election. Do we trust our institutions to actually make our lives better? You're all about trying to get people to listen to the other side, and yet the person who is a likely Republican nominee for president this year is someone who seems to pride himself, Governor Moore, on being a divider rather than a uniter, and that is former President Trump. How do you do this work under those circumstances? because I'm not doing this work because I'm pushing against Donald Trump. I'm doing this work because there was over a million Marylanders who said we want you to do the job and remember us. Um, I, 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 don't, I, I don't get up in the morning and think to myself, uh, what do I have to do to combat the ills of Donald Trump or his vitriolic language or the absurdity of some of the things that he says on a repeated basis. Um, I'm doing this work because there are 6.3 million people who are asking me every single day to remember them, not him. When we, when we elevate kind of a single election, um, it, it leads to more problematic behavior. If this really is the most important election in the history of the United States, then, then every site should be doing everything possible to win, even if it's maybe not legitimate, right? And that's a dangerous way to look at things. Our country is bigger and better than any single person or any single president. In, uh, we have 50 states, 50 states where we're innovating, where we're stealing ideas from each other, where we're fixing actual problems. America is so much better and more resilient than Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And thank goodness we are, because that's how we've made it through the last eight years, and it's how we're going to make it through the next four, no matter who gets elected. And so I, I just, I believe in us, I believe in the American people, and I believe that we should be engaging with the American people to find out why they feel so attacked all of the time and to try to make life better for them. A call to all Americans to focus on finding solutions, compromise, and listening to each other. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Judy Woodruff in Washington. And we'll be back shortly for a look at a music teacher in Austin who celebrates Mexican culture by incorporating mariachi music into her classes. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support, which helps keep programs like ours on the air. For those of you staying with us, we often talk about human origins as the evolution of man. But what if we saw it as the evolution of woman? A new book argues for a better understanding of our beginnings. Jeffrey Brown has this Encore report. Where do we come from and how did we evolve into the beings and bodies we are today? It's a story that continues to fascinate at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Human origins. Yeah, here we are. Where Kat Bohannon first came as a child, and now with a call for a new way of looking at human development. We have a lot of stories about the evolution of mammals. We especially have a lot of stories about the evolution of humanity and its possible past. But weirdly, in so many of these stories, the female is at best a side character. You know what I mean? But increasingly, in many different disciplines, whether it's anthropology or in biology, we're putting that female back in the picture. And that actually changes how we tell that story. Bohannon tells the story in Eve, how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. In fact, with personal whimsy as well as scientific data, she writes of many Eves, starting with a creature she nicknames Morgie, perhaps the first ever breastfeeder. 
It's delightful that the reason someone like me might have breasts is because there is this little weaselly creature 200 million years ago living under the literal feet of dinosaurs, and she starts lactating, and that's why, right? So that's just fun. And she gives us other Eves, who bring tools, language, and a whole lot more into the tale of the human species as a whole. It's really rewarding to remember how deeply ancient these things are, you know, that the body is in many ways a a unit of time, right. right, with different things that arrive at different points in time. You know, that this human brain is incredibly recent, right, and that my digestive system is incredibly ancient. These eaves are meant to give us a way into where these features of our bodies might have come from and how that story still shapes how we live in them today. For Bill Hannon, whose PhD research was in cognitive psychology and literature, a fundamental problem, an example of how hominins and early humans learned to problem solve, is in childbirth. You say we're one of the worst. We are terrible at it. Oh, yeah. And yet, yes. we populate the globe. Absolutely. And we do that by having behavioral workarounds, which is that deep human story. It's kind of what we're always doing. We're always finding behavioral workarounds for the limitations of our body. She That's took us a long way back. How you doing, Luce? How's it hanging? To Lucy, the version of her on display. All bones here are actually casts. The actual Lucy of the species Australopithecus afarensis was discovered in present-day Ethiopia in 1967. Bohannon's focus, Lucy's pelvis. The pelvic opening has narrowed, which is part of what enables us to be up here instead mm -hmm. of down here. And some really, really good scientists have determined that she had a similar problem as we do. She had the obstetric dilemma. She had big babies and had a hard time getting out of, well, a small pelvic opening. Right, you which, know? which a lot of women will uh, relate to. Yeah, I did that twice. I'm good. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but the thing is, is that means that story the it being hard story starts at least 3.2 million years ago. And the current theory is that actually Lucy probably had a midwife. Lucy had a midwife. Lucy had a midwife. She was small, she was furry, she was very chimpy, but she had a midwife because she had difficult births that needed help. And in that moment of vulnerability, you know, to, to get them out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's a big part of our success story, which we don't normally talk about, but yeah. Mohanan loves that famous first scene of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. But she wants us to focus less on conflict, more on gynecology. And how a focus on evolution of the female body can change how we think of the development of other traits, such as language. We assume there are these grand moments uh, where language arrives, usually about hunting, shouting directions. Yeah, of course. Isn't that the standard story about... It's a common story. Okay. It's a common story. But remember that all of these are language users because all of these communicate, all of these mixed sex members of a group. And when you look at the evolution of language in terms of its developmental path, it becomes a childhood story very quickly. And frankly, most of the time that's happening with the mother, in part because breastfeeding. This is when we're you're connected, literally connected, mm -hmm. many hours a day mm -hmm. to a face which is communicating with you at those critical moments of brain development. Bohannon's book, which synthesizes the work of hundreds of scientists, many of them women, raises numerous such examples. But it also raises critical implications for women's health today and addresses the so-called male norm that has traditionally guided medical science that for a very long time in biology um, and in biomedical research, we're mostly studying male subjects. Mm -hmm. That's how we control for estrus, the messiness of that hormonal cycle, was just taking them literally out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And we're only just starting to finally rectify that. You know, this is kind of a paradigm shift, kind of a sea change. And we don't entirely know what of biological sex differences are gonna deeply matter, yet we will know the more we study it. We still don't know. Absolutely not, but excellent scientists all around the world are doing that work right now, which is why this book can even exist. She points to the growing awareness of different responses by men and women to opioids, for example, and the need for better guidelines to distinguish between them. Because we live in the bodies we do that have this, that have this deep evolutionary time, our health is affected by how well we understand that history. Mm -hmm. Our medicine is shaped by how well we're able to incorporate better knowledge about literally what these things are. Mm -hmm. 
and what we are is made of where we came from, because that's how evolution works. Mm -hmm. Deep time down to the present day in a still developing story of evolution. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Though its roots are in Mexico, mariachi music has become widely popular across the United States as well. Music teacher Susana Diaz-Lopez shares her insights on its growth and impact in the Austin area. Our Student Reporting Labs Academy fellows produced this story as part of our arts and culture series, Canvas. Mariachi music is folk music. You gotta stand up, you know, feet apart, you know, strong, you know, confident. I get my thing, mariachi music in Austin is very small. I think it's growing, um, but I think it still has a long ways to go. I noticed that our population at our school was mostly Hispanic and Latino students, who are literally, some of them are immigrants that come from all over. Sometimes they don't fit in. Uh, we've always tried to <laughs> make them feel comfortable and welcome and just connected to some type of program, even if it's an after-school program. I knew more of, um, about mariachi by, you know, just family culture. Me going to Mexico, listening to mariachi music all the time, you know, uh, my mom cleaning my Mexican music, mariachi music all the time, um, waking up, mariachi music, um, going to sleep, mariachi music, something that's gonna always be a core memory for me. I started teaching mariachi at Soundwaves. I learned more about what they do and the program that they have had so far. And so that just spiked an interest, so I decided to go for it. I do have some students that do not have a background in mariachi at all or that don't speak the language and they still sing. They learn by just listening to the songs. Austin Soundwaves is a nonprofit organization. They specialize in um, teaching students who don't have a good, like, good access to music. It's a big family to them. It's something that even though they weren't born into, they feel very connected to. I never got to experience any conjunto or mariachi music. I don't have any heritage to Mexico that I know of. Um, so getting to experience this music with people is really, really, really fascinating. Even if you're not a part of the Mexican culture or Hispanic culture, I feel like mariachi music is recognized by anybody. And so I think it does in some form bridge that gap between cultures and it also brings a lot of cultural awareness in the U.S. as well. And you can find more stories from our Student Academy at studentreportinglabs.org. And join us again here tomorrow night as President Biden and former President Trump hold dueling events at the Texas border. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for joining us and have a good evening.